Not one human being who's ever lived on this planet or ever will live on this planet ever has an excuse when they appear before God. There's just way too much evidence for them to say, I didn't know. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Well, hi there, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue Tom's series in Romans 1 titled, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. So far in our study, Pastor Tom has helped us understand two key realities. One, that God's wrath is a biblical doctrine and it must be understood and believed. And two, all mankind knows God exists through what God has revealed of Himself in the created world. But rather than graciously responding to God's revelation of Himself, fallen mankind suppresses that truth and does not give Him glory. So rather than honoring and glorifying God because of what He has revealed about Himself, mankind instead rebels. Friend, what is your response to your knowledge and understanding of God? Consider the issue carefully as Tom Pennington begins today's study now here on The Word Unleashed. I was thinking this week as I was preparing about the amazing gifts that God has given us in His common grace. He's allowed things to be discovered that just enrich our understanding of the world He's made. And specifically, my mind went to two of them. The telescope which allows us to view the universe around this planet, the countless galaxies that inhabit the universe, and the microscope, which allows us to see the universe that is on this planet, the microscopic universe that surrounds us constantly. It wasn't until the 13th century, the 1200s, that an Italian named Salvino de Marte developed the art of grinding lenses and created the first eyeglass, which allowed for magnification on one eye. And of course, all of us who are sitting here with an eyeglass on each eye, we are very grateful because we can see as a result of that. And those of you who are wearing contact lenses, more than 300 years later, after the development of the eyeglass, in 1590, two men, a father and son, Dutch lens grinders Hans and Zacharias Janssen made the first microscope. They put two of those lenses in a tube. But for about a hundred years, what they had discovered remained, for the most part, just a novelty. It wasn't until the year 1675 that a man named Anton van Leeuwenk, a Dutch scientist, became the first man to make and to use a real microscope. He had found a way, he developed a new way to polish lenses, and through his simple microscope with those, those highly polished lenses, he was able to be the first man in human history to see and to describe bacteria, yeast, the life that's teeming in a single drop of water, and the circulation of the blood corpuscles in the capillaries. It was several hundred years later, in 1938, when the next major advance came in the microscope with the electron microscope. 
And then in my lifetime, in 1981, two men invented a scanning electron microscope, which provides three-dimensional images of objects down to the atomic level. And that invention opened up to us an entire new world, the ability to see God's creation at a level of detail that it had never been seen before. Take just one example, the Alaskan krill. The krill is a a small shrimp-like crustacean that is typically only about two inches long. Scientists estimate that this is the major food source in the oceans. In fact, just one species, and there are, I think, some 31 different species of these krill, just one species has a biomass of 380 million tons. That's greater than all the humans alive on the planet today. But when you start looking at these tiny little creatures and you examine a krill's eye under 3D high magnification, what you discover is something of the artistry and the wisdom of its creator. You see incredible detail and symmetry. It is truly astounding. Just on one small little creature of which there are billions and trillions in in the oceans of the world. With the telescope and with the microscope, we can see beyond what the naked eye can see, and now we have even more evidence so that, as Paul says in Romans 1, man is truly without excuse. But we didn't need microscopes and telescopes for that to be true. Just the eyes God gave us enable us to see. William Hendrickson writes, Even without the benefit of such products of human invention as a microscope and a telescope, think about this, men were able to reflect on the vastness of the universe, the fixed order of the heavenly bodies in their courses, the arrangement of the leaves around the stem, the hydrological cycle, the mystery of growth from seed to plant, the thrill of the sunrise from faint rosy flush to majestic orb, the skill of birds in building their homes without ever having taken lessons in home building, the generous manner in which all creatures are supplied with the food that they need, the adaptation of living creatures to their environment. He gives the example of of the flexible hooves of camels specially suited to the soft desert sands. And on and on the list could go. Just with the naked eye, all of those things are clear and visible. The evidence is overwhelming, Hendrickson says. That is exactly Paul's point in Romans 1. Turn there again with me, Romans chapter 1. Let me read for you the paragraph we're studying. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, 
they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. As we've noted, Paul introduces the theme of this letter in the previous verses, verses 16 and 17. The theme, of course, is the gospel, justification by faith alone. And that message is crucial for all men because apart from the gospel, we all stand even now today under the wrath of God. So from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 verse 20, Paul sets out to prove man's universal need of the gospel, his universal need of the righteousness that comes from God by faith alone. He begins his indictment with one category, the immoral pagan. And that really is what occupies him through all of the rest of chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and running down through verse 32. This is the person who does not claim to worship the true God of the Bible. Against such a person, verse 18 says, the wrath of God literally is being revealed right now. God's wrath is being revealed. The rest of chapter 1 then answers two questions about that statement. First of all, why is God's wrath revealed? That's verses 18 to 23. And then how is God's wrath being revealed against immoral pagans? Verses 24 to 32. So first of all then, Paul answers the question, why? Why is God's wrath revealed against immoral pagans? And he gives us two reasons. First of all, his willful rebellion against God's law. His willful rebellion against God's law. And man's rebellion really falls into two categories. First of all, ungodliness. Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. We took some time to define what ungodliness is. It doesn't mean you're irreligious. It means you do not properly fear the true God. You don't honor and respect him as you ought. You don't love him as you ought to love him, and you don't worship him as you ought to worship him. That's ungodliness, a failure to fear God, to honor him, to love him, and to worship him. The second manifestation of our rebellion is unrighteousness. Notice verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. This describes a lack of conformity to the law of God. So God's wrath then is being revealed from heaven because of the pagans' willful rebellion against God's law, manifested in these two different ways. Now, there's a second reason that God's wrath is being revealed, and that is the pagans' willful ignorance of God's person. Paul begins this section, as we noted at the end of verse 18, with a brief summary He describes it this way, men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, men are willfully ignorant about God's person that's clearly revealed to them in the creation. They hold it down, they silence its voice, they stifle it. Why? Well, verse 18 says they do it in unrighteousness. They do it because 
And we do it, we did it before Christ because we loved our sin. Now that's a brief summary of man's willful ignorance of God's person. He goes on, beginning in verse 19, down through the end of the paragraph we read, to give us a sort of detailed explanation of this, this willful ignorance of God's person. He's really answering the question, how, Paul, can you say that someone without the Scripture is still suppressing God's truth? How can you say that? Well, it's because of the fact that God has revealed himself. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident, is clear, is visible, is plain within them. For God made it evident to them. All unbelievers have this revelation. God has revealed himself. When? Verse 20 answers that question. For since the creation of the world... From the very beginning of time, God has been revealing himself in this way. Now, what exactly has God revealed about himself? Again, verse 20 continues, his invisible attributes, there are invisible qualities of God that he's revealed, specifically his eternal power. That's his eternity, the fact that he transcends time. He's not not subject to decay and death like we are. As generation goes to generation, we understand that. And his eternal power. God does whatever God wants to do. Any being that can create all of this, sustain all of this, has to be more powerful than we can imagine. And his divine nature, his deity, his, his godness, that there is a supreme being, is evident. Now, how has God revealed himself? Well, verse 20 goes on to say, those invisible attributes have been clearly seen and understood. How? Through what has been made. By looking at the creation, man understands that there is a God, and they understand certain things about him. Now, what results then from God's revelation in creation? Verse 20 ends with this statement, so that they are without excuse. There's the result. Not one human being who's ever lived on this planet or ever will live on this planet, ever has an excuse when they appear before God. There's just way too much evidence for them to say, I didn't know. Now, that brings us to where we left off last time. Today we come to verses 21 to 23. And in these verses, Paul unfolds yet another part of this explanation of of man's willful rebellion against God's person, Specifically, he explains here how man responds to God's revelation in creation. How man responds to God's revelation in creation. Paul finishes verse 20 by an assertion that the sinful pagan has no valid excuse. In verses 21 to 23, he explains why that's true. It's true because of the way that man has universally responded to God's general revelation. Look at how man responds to that amazing revelation that's in creation. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, when we read that, that section, I think our minds immediately go to a specific kind of sinner. Usually, the unsophisticated animist who's living in a jungle somewhere. And and clearly, this paragraph refers to that kind of person, the, the sort of tribal person everywhere. But remember now, Paul didn't serve in jungles and barren plains. Paul's ministry was focused on the population centers of first century Europe. He served in the great cities of the Roman Empire. He preached and taught in the cornerstone of Western civilization, the Greco-Roman world. He lived in a culture that was marked by the great Greek philosophers, by the Romans and, and their historians and their engineers and their technological marvels. Understand then, Paul's words here in Romans 1 target not only the tribesmen of rural Africa, but the academics of Rome. Not only the unsophisticated, but the man of the world. Not only the uneducated, but the intelligent and the intellectual. So, this description is comprehensive in its scope. It describes all men and women who have ever lived who don't claim to worship the true God of the Bible. From the nobodies to the world's powerful and influential. From the ignorant to the university PhDs. From the uncivilized to the cosmopolitan. I want you to think for just a moment about the people in your world who don't claim to worship the true God of the Bible. Think about them. Maybe they're family members or friends, neighbors, co-workers, a teacher, professor. Here, according to God, is their spiritual diagnosis. It's the diagnosis of every pagan sinner. It's the diagnosis of every great civilization from ancient Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Persians, Greece, Rome, and to today. In fact, it is the diagnosis of all humanity. Man's response to God is absolutely shocking. Notice his response to God begins with hard hearts. Hard hearts. Folks, here is ground zero. Here is the foundation of human sinfulness. This is where man's rebellion begins. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Now, first of all, notice that Paul connects this verse with the one before it using the word for. In other words, Verse 21 is the reason that all pagans are without excuse, as he ends verse 20. For even though they knew God. Now stop there. What does he mean by they knew God? Don't misunderstand Paul. He's very clear in other places that pagans don't know God in the way we normally use that expression, the way we talk about knowing God. In fact, in Galatians 4, 8, He speaks to the Galatians before their conversion and says, At that time, you did not know God. Instead, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, The Gentiles do not know God. 
Paul's not contradicting himself here in Romans 1. He's making a, a different point. When he says they knew God, he means they had seen the truth about God in his creation and they understood certain things about God. Tragically, they responded to that knowledge with rebellion. They responded with hard hearts. They simply refused to respond appropriately to the God they had seen in his creation. Now, how did they respond? What does this hard heart look like? Well, first of all, they did not glorify him. Notice verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Now, if you have the New American Standard, notice the marginal note with verse 21. You will see that the Greek word translated honor is actually the word glorify. They did not glorify him as God. Now, that's remarkable in light of the very reason that man exists. I mean, after all, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the reason you have breath. That's the reason I have breath. But before we came to Christ, we simply refused to glorify the true God as God. So what does this mean to glorify? I mean, clearly it's, it's the, the chief end of man. Clearly it's the chief sin to fail to do. So what does it mean? Well, the Greek word is doxa. The leading Greek lexicon defines it as to influence one's opinion of another so as to enhance that person's reputation, to praise, to honor, to extol. But what does it mean specifically in reference to God? What does it mean they didn't, they didn't glorify him as God? First of all, to glorify God in this sense means to acknowledge him as the true God. First of all, to acknowledge him as the true God. In other words, you have to cut through the clutter of idolatry and to really glorify God as God, you have to see that he's the one true God. Secondly, you have to own him as your God. It's not enough to say, yeah, I think he's the one true God but I don't want to have anything to do with him. You have to own him as your God if you're going to glorify him. And then you have to give him what belongs to him in your thoughts and in your words and in your actions. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point of glorifying God because let me define it for you this way. It's really the opposite of ungodliness. You remember what we learned ungodliness is? It's the failure to fear God as we ought to fear him. It's the failure to love God as we ought to love him. It's the failure to worship God as we ought to worship him. To glorify God is exactly the opposite of that. It's acknowledging that he's the only true God. It's acknowledging him as my God. And then it is fearing him as I ought to fear him. It is loving him as I ought to love him. And it is worshiping him, praising, thanking him as I ought to thank him. That's what it means to glorify God. There are a lot of other ways we can fill that out if we were to take the time to do so, but that's it in its essence. So understand then, when Paul says they didn't honor him as God, he doesn't mean unbelievers never say nice things about their creator. Clearly they do. But they don't ascribe to him 
what he is really due. They don't fear him as they ought to fear him. They don't love him as they ought to love him. And they don't worship him as they ought to worship him. With this failure, man begins his journey toward paganism. It is this failure to glorify God that begins man on his road toward false religion. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program. Do join us then. What does the Bible say about church membership? In Tom Pennington's book, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member, he identifies three non-negotiable hallmarks that should characterize every church member. Tom will challenge you to assess your own church membership to determine if you're meeting those hallmarks, not only for the health of your church, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word Again, that's listeners at the word Or you can call us at 1 577 Word. And remember to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.